0: For those of us who are visiting today, uh, just to fill you in a little bit, this is the 10th week of a series that we started on the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is about uh, God working amongst his people to restore the city of Jerusalem and the people of God as his people. So we're about halfway through the book right now. Uh, We just finished with chapter 7 last week. And what happens from chapter one to chapter seven is the big, ch- uh, the uh, Nehemiah hears in chapter one that things are bad in Jerusalem. He's in Susa, the, uh, the uh, Persian capital, southern capital, and he's, he's there, and he gets a report saying things are really bad. And God takes that report, and it works. He works it into Nehemiah, and it becomes this great, great burden, this great call. So the long and the short of it is he spends months weeping, mourning, praying, thinking, hearing from God. And then he takes his probably three-month journey to get to Jerusalem. And uh, he uh, lays out his vision before the people. And they say, yeah, let's rise up and build. We're going to rebuild the walls. It's a big deal. And then they start the building process. And it just doesn't go smooth. They have all kinds of opposition. Opposition from the inside. Opposition from the outside. Uh, there are threats. There's ridicule. There's intimidation. There's, there's uh, all kinds of stuff happening to try to stop the people from finishing a wall. But they finish. By the end of chapter 7, the walls of the city are rebuilt. The city is now safe and secure from attack from the outside. It's a huge victory for God and the people of God. And you would think that when that happened, that they would say, wow, we're here, we're done. You would think they would take a deep breath and take a nap. But instead, they gather together. Because the building of the walls, the rebuilding of the walls is a major accomplishment, but it's only part of the work, the big work. The big work is rebuilding and restoring the people of God as the people of God. Restoring their identity as God's people. Restoring their and deepening their vision of God and their their vision of themselves as his people. And that work continues on through the rest of the book of Nehemiah and beyond. So what I want to do is kind of give you right up front the big idea about Nehemiah chapter 8, okay? What Nehemiah chapter 8 about is about is how the people of God should respond. It's kind of like a case study of the ways the people of God should respond to the word of God because it's the word of God that enables us to really know God, to know ourselves as God's people, and to know how to follow him with all of our hearts and minds and souls in strength. Nehemiah chapter is a case study for the centrality of God's word in the life of God's people who are on pilgrimage with God to the new Jerusalem. So in verses 1 through 8 of the book of Nehemiah, we see the people hungering for God's word. And we see them um, humbly coming before God's word, the people of God, and, and the gift, the teachers in the, in, the, in the body teaching them, helping them understand God's word. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see the word of God sort of penetrating into their lives and hearts and souls. And it leads them to repentance. As they hear the word of God, it just does something in them. It breaks their hearts in a sense. And they respond by weeping and praying. And then they continue on in the word of God. And in verses 13 to 18, we see the way they respond to the word of God. They hunger for God's word. They listen to God's word and let it come in deep. And then they obey God's word fully, enthusiastically, completely, immediately. That's where we're going this morning. So let me read our text for today. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the teacher of the law to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right said, Medathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Melchizedek, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Mishulam. They might want to rethink their name somewhere. Ezra opened the book. All the people could not see him because he was standing above them. All I should say, all people could see him because he was standing above them. And as happened, and as he opened it, all the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down. And worship the Lord with her faces to the ground. The Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructed the people, said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day... Of the month, heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout the towns. And in Jerusalem, go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Nehemiah chapter 8, let me say it again, is a case study for the way the people of God should approach the Word of God. How they should approach it, how they should reflect on it and let it in, how they should respond to it. I'm going to focus on that for the bulk of the sermon today. But I want to start with one small but important point. Nehemiah chapter 8 is also the first chapter in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah and Ezra are on the same platform together. Uh, some of you may know that in the Hebrew scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're together because they have unified themes. There's a lot of, lot of um, connection between the two books. We have split them in our Bibles, but they're really should be read as one. But this is the first time in the book of Nehemiah that they're together. And it's interesting the way they're described. Nehemiah is called the governor. Nehemiah the governor. And Ezra, four times in this text, is referred to as a teacher of the law. Nehemiah, governor. Ezra, teacher of the law. Nehemiah, civic leader. Ezra, religious leader. Now, some people may, say, may look at this and say, well, what this is, is kind of the coming together of the sacred and of the secular. And I would say, no, it is not that at all. Why? Because Nehemiah, the governor, is called by God to be the governor. Is Nehemiah's sacred, if you will, task to be governor to the people of Jerusalem and surrounding towns? It's a sacred calling, a sacred task. Ezra, the teacher of, of the law, was called by God to teach the scriptures. That was a sacred calling, a calling given to him by God. What we have here in Nehemiah chapter 8, is two sacred callings coming together, two distinct sacred callings coming together for a larger purpose of God. That is the way God wants his people to function. We bring our separate callings from God together to accomplish the work of God in the church and in the world. For the people of God, there's no such thing as sacred and secular. It all belongs to Jesus. It all belongs to Jesus. Your work as a lawyer, a politician, a plumber, somebody in the trades, as a mom, a dad, a grandparent, as a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, all of that belongs to God. All of that is meant to come together in one unified work of God to reveal God's glory and accomplish God's purpose in the world. So what makes it sacred isn't the task itself, but whether it's consecrated, given up to God, so that God uses it for his purposes and for his glory. What that means is You could be a preacher and not have a sacred calling if it's not consecrated to God. You could be an IRS agent and it could be a sacred calling if it is consecrated to God. God has given each of us callings. And we do them before the face of God, before the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to his glory and honor and purpose. And when we do that, it's sacred and it's good. So remember that. Your work is an opportunity for you. Whatever your work is, whatever your work is, your work is an opportunity to do sacred work in the world. And unless and when we bring all of our sacred callings together, something happens that's way bigger than any of us could have imagined on our own. Amen. All right. So back to Nehemiah. What the, what Nehemiah beginning with Nehemiah chapter verse one, chapter eight. What we're told is all the people gather together. All the people gather together as one. They're in the square before the water gate. And what do they want? Why are they there? They're there because they want the word of God. They're the ones who tell Nehemiah, bring us the book, open the book, read the scriptures. They initiate. They're crying out for God's word. And where do they gather? They gather at the water gate. It's a public space. Usually the reading of the law was read in the temple, and only men could be there. But here at this time, all of them are gathered together. Several times in the text, you may may recall, it says, and all those who could understand. What that means is is that you have men, and you have women, and you also have Children. All those who could understand. Men, women, old, young, coming together. Children, three years old, four years old, five years old, six years old, whatever. I'm not sure when kids understand. But they understand early. And they're there. All of them together in one place. They all have the opportunity to hear the word of the Lord. So what happens? Ezra opens the book, and he begins to read. He reads from daybreak until noon. That's about six hours. And as soon as he opens the book, which is actually a scroll, not a book like we think book, but as soon as he opens the scroll and begins to read, the people stand up. They stand up. It's a sign of respect and awe before the word of God. They lift their hands. It's an expression of openness and awe. They shout, amen, amen. That's, that's a declaration of joyful agreement. It's true. It's, it is so true. Amen. I kind of picture him not just standing but jumping. Because these are folks who are just tuned in. They're geared in. They're not just standing and daydreaming, they're just tuned in. They're tuned into the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers. And then they bow down and worship. They put their faces to the ground. This is a posture. This is an act of surrender. So here they are. They're hungered for God's word. They're honoring God's word. They're humbling themselves before God's word. I don't know how many times as I've been thinking about this passage over the last week, How many times I had to ask myself, well, is this the way that I approach God's word? Do I stand in awe before the word of God? Do I humble myself before it? Do I surrender myself to it? Do I let it really sink in and speak to me? Do I do that? Lord, do I do that? And it may be, These are the kinds of questions that each of you should be asking as well. Is that your posture before the word of God? Do you recognize that when you open up your Bibles, that you're opening them up to the word of the God of the universe? God of the universe speaking to us through his word that that should make your minds kind of go wow and your hearts go yay so Ezra He reads from daybreak until noon. And the people listen with full attention. And meanwhile, as that's happening, there are Levites who are dispersed among all the people. And what they're doing is instructing the people while they're standing and listening. They read from the book of the Law of Moses, it says, making it clear, making it clear, and giving the meaning. Now, it may be that part of what they're doing here is actually translating because the scroll that Ezra is reading from is in Hebrew, but the language that the people are most familiar with, their own kind of personal language, is Aramaic. And scholars are divided about how much the people of Israel actually knew Hebrew by that point just not clear. So it may be that what's happening is they're doing some translation, but they're also doing exegesis. What the word exegesis means is that they're revealing, they're pulling out the meaning of the text, not their own meaning, not their own opinion, but the meaning of the text. They're making it clear. They're bringing out the meaning So that all the people, all the people understand what is being read. So picture the scene. Picture the scene. You had all these people, men and women and boys and girls in this big crowd. And Levites are kind of dispersed around the crowd, in the crowd. And picture the scene. Here's a Levite. Maybe he's wearing his priestly robes. And he kind of kneels before this seven-year-old little girl and says, honey, do you understand what you're hearing? Do you have any questions about it? Do you? And he starts answering her questions. And maybe there's another Levite as that's going on somewhere else in the crowd. And there's an elderly person, you know, 60 years old, which is my age, who's hard of hearing and doesn't have his hearing aids in, and Levi says, I I know the acoustics might not be perfect. Can you hear what's being said? Do you need some help in kind of hearing? And so Levi kind of recaps what's being read and then explains that. Can you picture that happening? What's going on here? What's going on here is that the walls of gender, the walls of education, the walls of age are being broken down. And all the people, at least for this moment, are blessed by the word of God. They hear it and have it explained to them together. I was raised in an immigrant family. Parents came to the U.S. from Greece. I grew up in the Greek Orthodox Church, and I left the Greek Orthodox Church in my early teens and then really drifted. The reason I left the Greek Orthodox Church of my youth was because I had questions. Even as a little kid, a young kid, I had questions. And I would ask my questions, and I was essentially told, just shut up and be quiet. Show up in church. Stand when you're supposed to sit down, when you're supposed to be quiet. For whatever reason for whatever reason, and I'm not saying this broadly about the Greek Orthodox, I'm just talking about my experience in that church, in the church that I grew up in, for whatever reason, my questions weren't taken seriously, I wasn't taken seriously. And after a while, I said, okay. And I walked away. I walked away. And I walked away for a number of years, and I finally came back to faith for the same reason, if you will, that I left. I got to college, Tufts University, met some folks on campus, students who were Christians, and they kept inviting me to a Bible study. And I finally said yes because they kept inviting me. And I felt, well, I guess they want me there. And I ought to at least know something about the Bible. So I went. I didn't go in thinking that I'm going to a Bible study, the Word of God. I came mostly because just they were my friends, and I was tired of disappointing them. So I'm there, and we're in this Bible study. And what struck me the very first time Was these were folks who took one another and took one another's questions seriously and then took those questions and brought them into the scriptures. What did the scriptures say about these questions? And so I observed for a number of weeks, and it was the same thing every week. They took people's questions seriously and brought them to the scriptures. And what that did for me is it said maybe I should start reading the scriptures for myself. And I started reading the Bible for myself. And as I did that, it started becoming self-authenticating to me. It started to speak to me. And I got to the point where the Bible convinced me that the Bible was true. True and right and authoritative May it never be the case that anyone is part of our church, our body. May it never be the case that they're part of our church and they have questions and they and their questions are not taken seriously. Whether they're two years old or 102, may we take one another seriously and listen to one another's questions. So, Ezra and his helpers are reading and the people are listening attentively and they begin to mourn and to weep. And the text doesn't tell us why that happens. I'm in verses 9 through 12 right now. The text doesn't tell us why they're weeping. You can kind of surmise a little bit. Maybe they're weeping. They're mourning because... They haven't heard the word of God in a long, long time and in mourning over what they've missed. Maybe they're weeping because they're remembering the exile, what it was like to be an exile community under disgrace. They're remembering that. And even though the walls are up, the city's secure, things kind of look good, but maybe they have memories of all the trauma the ridicule, the shame, the threats, all, they have memories of that, and that trauma is strong, and it's hard to let go. Maybe they're carrying a whole lot of guilt and shame because as a book of the law is being read, they recognize, they realize that they have strayed so far from God's law, God's purposes for them. Maybe they're weeping because the book of the law is being read and they're seeing something of the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and they're weeping because they know they've disappointed the God who loves them. For whatever reason that they're mourning and weeping, they are mourning and weeping. And you would expect, you might expect that Ezra and the priests, the Levites, would sing, yeah, you should be mourning and weeping. Because you guys have fallen so far away. But that's not what happens. What happens? They're told, do not weep. Do not mourn. This is a day that is holy to the Lord. This is a day of celebration. It's a day of celebration. Why? Because now, finally, you're where you're supposed to be. You're together as one body. You're together as one body under the word of God. You're together as one body in worship. You're home. You are so home now. You're home. This is what you were made for. Not a day to weep. This is a day to celebrate. And it's such a day to celebrate that you ought to get everybody in on it. So go find the people who aren't here. Go to the surrounding times. Bring them in and celebrate together. Celebrate. Amen to that. We are a people who have been brought home. When we engage scripture with openness, with humility, with integrity, scripture serves as both a mirror and a window. A mirror and a window. It's a mirror in that as we engage with scripture, we begin to see ourselves as we really are. And truth to tell, sometimes it's not a pretty picture. We all have stuff. Brokenness and pain and sin and failure. We all have stuff. But scripture is also a window. Scripture helps us to see through our stuff and into the face of God. God, the one who forgives us God, the one who heals and restores us, the God who comforts us in our sorrow, who wipes away our tears. When we engage with Scripture, it leads to both repentance and also to rejoicing. It's good to repent, but it's not good to stay there And wallow in our sin. Repentance leads us through our, true repentance leads us through our sin to the face of God. And in the face of God, we receive his healing, his peace, his comfort, his truth. We receive his joy. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 12. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you need strength right now? How many of you feel tired or worn out and weak and frustrated, angry maybe, self-pitying, all kinds of stuff? How many of you need strength? A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting here in church and I had a meltdown. I kind of had my own little mini emotional meltdown. And I was thinking about why was I having a meltdown? It's because I was focusing on my stuff and it was taking up my whole view, my whole vision. I wasn't seeing through to the face of Jesus. We need to see through to the face of Jesus. We are a people who were made for joy. We are a people who were made to live in the Lord's strength. And when we see Jesus and enter into the joy that he has for us, and we turn the joy that we have in him, then we have strength sufficient to get through whatever life throws at us. Whatever life throws at us. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So that all of that's going on that first day. And then the second day, the heads of the households get together with the priests and the Levites, and they get further instruction to bring back to their communities, their families, their larger communities. And so they're getting this instruction, and as they're doing that, they recognize, they're reading from Leviticus 23. And Leviticus 23 is about the Uh, assemblies, the feast days of the people of Israel. Leviticus 23 is about the month of Tishri, the seventh month of the Jewish year. And the first day of the month, of this month of Tishri, is Rosh Hashanah. And then from there, there are 10 days going, leading up to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The, Jew, the Jewish people call them the Days of Awe. These whole 10 days are a period where they listen and reflect and repent and they mourn and they grieve and they resurrender themselves to the purpose of God. But five days later is a feast of tabernacles, or in some of our Bibles might say Feast of Booths. The Jews call it the Feast of Sukkot. And that is a time of celebration. They're celebrating two things. They're celebrating the completion of the fall harvest. So it's, a, it's a celebrating God's provision, his bounty, his generosity to them, and even more, they're celebrating the fact that God took them out of slavery in Egypt and He kept them, He provided for them, he protected them through 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. So it's a day, a time, a period of celebration now where they celebrate the majesty, the power, the wisdom, the goodness, the generosity the protection, the provision of their great God. And part of what's going on, I'm pretty sure, is that they're thinking about this prior exodus and provision leading of God that took him from slavery to the promised land and they're thinking, "Here's our history now. God took us from exile back to the promised land. Similar journeys and God's great provision in both. They have a lot to celebrate." So the text says, "It was not since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, did they celebrate the feast like this." They've linked their history with God's larger history. And God's larger history is helping to interpret their personal history as a people. And it unleashes this glorious celebration. We need to be people who celebrate. We need to be people who rehearse, remember, rehearse, reenact the mighty deeds of God. I mean, picture it. Year after year after year, Decade after decade after decade, the people of God celebrated this Feast of Tabernacles. And they built these temporary shelters, which on the face of it is ridiculous. Except that it reminds them of who they are, where they come from, how God led them. It reminds them of the way as God has worked in their midst. Little kids... Getting, putting these shelters. Mom, Dad, why are we doing this? Oh, let me tell you the story. Can I share the story. We don't have to build shelters to tell the story, but we ought to figure out ways to keep telling the story to one another. Because when we don't, we forget. All of us have memory problems. Memory lapses. We forget the greatness of God and what God has done for us. So let me just say a couple of things about this. The best time to obey the word of God is immediately. When you see the word of God, and there's something here for you. Jump on it now. Right now. Don't hesitate. Keep reenacting, remembering, rehearsing, proclaiming, the mighty deeds of God. We need that with, from one another. Structure it. we got to figure out ways. we got to keep figuring out ways to structure it into our day-to-day lives and our, the day-to-day life of our church. So let me come back to the big theme again. God's word. It's the basis It's the foundation of all true and lasting spiritual renewal and restoration. It is. We can't become spiritually mature without knowing, understanding, obeying the word of God. We can't know how much we're loved by God without knowing the Bible. We can't know the purpose for our lives without hearing the word of the one who made us we need to be people of the book barner research group in their most recent study of a uh, re- recent uh, survey of bible engagement basically said that americans love the word of god they just don't read it very much 87% 88% of Americans own at least one Bible. The average household has 4.4 Bibles in their home. Okay, Bibles are everywhere. 79% of Americans believe that the Bible is sacred. But only 37% of Americans read the Bible once per week or more. So 79% think the Bible's sacred. Only 37% read it once per week or more. And then of those who who have read the Bible in the previous week, 57% say they gave a lot of thought to how it might apply to their lives. The others just kind of read it but didn't think about it at all. You know, they scratch it off their to-do list. Then they move to the real part of the day. You know? Lifeway Research did a similar study, but the 2,900 Protestant evangelical churchgoers, 90% of them said that they desire to please and honor God in all that they do. But only 19% of them personally read the Bible every day. Why aren't people reading the Bible? The biggest reason people gave in various service was it's just too busy. Just too busy. We're too busy to read Think about, to reflect on the word of the God who made us. We're too busy to think about it and let it shape our lives. We're missing out. We're just missing out on what God has for us, what God wants to do in our lives when we're too busy for him and for his word. In your bulletin, some of you may have noticed this is kind of, a, kind of a little sermon outline on the front part, an insert. In the back of that, this section says, Ideas for Reading, Reflecting Upon, and Responding to Scripture. We offer that to you so that, you know, some of us aren't reading the Scripture because we're not sure how to approach them. And this is a simple way to begin to read scriptures. a kind of a process. And so we offer it to you and hope that you find it useful. But the big idea, however you read the scriptures, the big idea is to come before it openly, humbly, attentively, and with a willingness to let it speak to you And shape you. May it be so for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you want to speak to us, you want us to know you. Thank you, Lord, that you have made yourself available to us through your word in so many ways. Lord, help us, help us to recognize the treasure you've given us, the gift you've placed in our hands. Lord, help us to be people of the book, people who read and think about, reflect, people who allow the scriptures to shape us into the people you've made us to be. Lord, give us hunger for your word. And fill us with your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.